Welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast, brought to you by TournamentPokerEdge.com, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to poker tournament strategy. Now here's your host, Clayton Fletcher. Hello once again, everybody, and welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Fletcher, here in New York City, where this weekend I will be performing stand-up comedy at Westside Comedy Club on Saturday night. The 6.30 show features none other than poker illuminati Joseph Stapleton. Yeah, Joe Stapleton and I will both be appearing at Westside Comedy Club this Saturday, December 18th at 6.30 p.m. Get your tickets right now at westsidecomedyclub.com if you are planning to be in New York. I wanted to kick things off today with a response to a tweet that I got from a regular listener by the name of Stephen Patty. You can follow him on Twitter, StephenPatty1. He says, Clayton, do you think you should get on the cover of a magazine if you fire six bullets to accomplish something? Okay, now this obviously loaded question is in reference to a player that I have definitely taken... uh, the opportunity to criticize here on the podcast back in January of 2020, right before the pandemic hit and no one knew what was coming. uh, Alex Foxen made the cover of card player magazine for winning the Bellagio five diamond poker classic part of the world poker tour. Now, uh, Steven, your question is valid. Because, you know, it, it's, is it fair that somebody who could buy into this, I believe it's a $10,000 event, uh, six times, doesn't that player have an advantage over a player who satellites in or who maybe has a bankroll that only allows him to buy in once to the same tournament that you can buy into six times? Is it fair to a sponsored pro who might have a website or other such entity giving him virtually unlimited re-entries into a major tournament such as the Bellagio Five Diamond Poker Classic. Well, the rules are the rules. You know, this kind of reminds me a bit of when somebody says this politician or that politician should be president because he or she won the popular vote when the object of the game is not just to win the popular vote, the object of the game is to win the Electoral College. So it's like, yeah, it's a valid criticism, and you can definitely point that out as evidence for whatever point you're trying to make about that particular politician or whatever the case may be. But at the end of the day, the rules are the rules, and you are allowed to re-enter the WPT Five Diamond Championship at the Bellagio. So Alex Foxen did nothing wrong. Now, whether or not he should be on the cover of magazine or celebrated in any way for uh, you know having that many re-entries, you know what? I don't really care. I, I think that if a magazine wants to put an asterisk by this victory or if Hendon Mob wants to somehow start denoting how many times people re-enter things or not, yeah, if you feel that it's a, an unfair advantage 
for someone to have the bankroll or whatever wherewithal to enter a tournament more than once when not everyone else can, you're basically making the uneven playing field argument, which I, I don't disparage you for making that argument. We should have a level playing field as best we can. Some players have real-time assistance on their laptops, and other players are just trying to do their best to approximate GTO. Uh, so that's also an example of how the playing field is not always level. You may be very well cheating by having five or six of your closest poker genius friends surrounding you as you play a final table and everyone is working as a team to help you win the tournament. That is also against the rules, but very much challenging to enforce for a number of reasons. There are a lot of things that make poker occasionally an uneven playing field. At the end of the day, what the players decide to buy into with their money is how we can vote. So if enough people think that having a major title such as the Five Diamond at Bellagio uh, if they want it to be a freeze-out, we can make it a freeze-out if we just didn't play. But the fact is, the casino makes more money <laughs> if they allow re-entries. So somebody like Alex, who pays, I don't know what the rake is in that tournament, let's say it's $500, and he pays it six times instead of once, then obviously the casino is happier getting $3,000 from him rather than just 500 so that is what we're up against, guys. We've got to realize that money talks. But this tweet got me thinking because in America, we just celebrate winning above all else. I mean, how many former baseball players or former football players who had a terrible reputation for cheating or using drugs or being violent towards women or mm-hmm. you know, being accused of murder are now working as analysts on (laughs) major network television sports coverage. Uh, To me, it's insane. But if those people have World Series rings or Super Bowl rings, or if Alex Foxen is the player of the year, although it looks like this year he will not be, but, you know, he's a two-time GPI player of the year. To me, it almost feels like in our society, we want heroes so badly that we're actually willing to overlook major flaws in either the system or in the players themselves and raise people up to hero status, even if there's some good reason why those people might not actually deserve that status in the first place. So that's my take on whether we should be putting people on a magazine after six buy-ins or not. I did notice this year that at the World Series of Poker, there were several tournaments, many more than usual, where re-entries were not allowed. And I personally love this because that way the World Series is offering something for everyone, for those who want to play in a tournament where they or some of their opponents or all of their opponents might be using multiple re-entries. They have that on, on the list as well. They make that available, but then for those who are concerned about this, like it seems to me from the tweet that Stephen Patty is, uh, they also offered a one-shot freeze-out for this tournament or that tournament. Now, the main event at the World Series of Poker 
the most important $10,000 buy-in event of the whole year has always been a freeze-out, and there is no talk that I'm aware of currently to ever change that. Uh, there's talk sometimes about changing the buy-in level because 10000 used to be a lot more money than it is now, but I think at the end of those discussions, they always land on, let's just keep it what it's always been. 10K, it seems like the right price point for the good balance of pros and amateurs that that big event always seems to attract. So you have the choice to play it or not, but when it comes to whether or not certain people should be heroes or not, I'm less concerned about Alex Foxen and more concerned about Alex Rodriguez. Okay, so let's get into a couple of hands that I played over the summer. Uh, this one is going to be from the $1,500 World Series of Poker shootout event. Now, if you listen to the episode that I recorded during the quote-unquote summer with Carlos Welch, I mentioned several times on that episode that I really like the shootout format. And it kind of occurred to me in the middle of playing that shootout that that is a style of poker that I should play more often because as you guys know, I like to go for first and shootouts are all about winning. Now, if you play a single table sit and go on whatever website you like to play on or even live when some casinos do offer live single tables, they are usually structured so that there are prizes for first, second, and third place. A notable exception is the single table satellite structure at the WSOP, which technically awards first place only, but anyone who's ever played in any number of those knows that typically at least a discussion of a chop is pretty standard practice when it gets down to two or even three players. So in the shootout, you don't have the option of chopping or making a deal or splitting it this way and you keep the lammers and I move on to this and that. There, there is no such chop. A possible exception might be, I don't know if I've ever even heard of this happening, but I guess it's possible that when I'm heads up with you, I might say, hey, do you want to swap 10% of this whole tournament? So that way, even if I lose, I still have a horse in the race if I end up getting second place. I suppose that is something that could be done between the players, but I've never actually seen it done in the limited number of shootout events that I've played in. But I don't even know if that would be considered kosher or not, especially if two players kind of had an understanding about that with three players left and the third player who's not involved in their little side deal kind of gets treated differently in any way at the table. Personally, I like the purity of it. There are 10 of you, win your table, and you move on. I love that. And as I've jokingly or half-jokingly said many times on this podcast, I wish that all poker tournaments could just be winner-takes-all so that we could see some players really trying to win. In the shootout format, I kind of get my wish, don't I? Because second place gets nothing at your first table anyway. So let's talk about a hand that I played early on in this event. You start with 25,000 chips, and I have... Managed to win a few pots in the first level, and now in level two, I have 28,000. The blinds are 200, 400, with a 400 
big blind ante. So there's 1,000 in the middle, and we have 28K. So our M is now 28, and we have 65 big blinds. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's right. Okay, so uh, it's been a pretty good table so far. It's a $1,500 tournament, and maybe some of the players that are in it are either taking a shot or perhaps they satellited in or had some lammers from the uh, satellite room and they decided to take a crack at the shootout. So uh, I, I'm not at a uh, table of GTO bots or anything like that. Uh, in fact, the worst player at the table, as far as I can tell, about an hour, hour and a half into the event, uh, limps in from third position, which is uh, just strange no matter who you are. Right? I mean, are we really limping in tournaments? I don't really think that the third position limp is something I would expect to see in a bracelet event, but here it is. Uh, he has been limping into quite a few pots, actually, and we have been happy to have position on him. I am just a few seats over from him. I believe I was on the cutoff. I may have had the button, and I had pocket kings. Now, there are no very short stacks at the table. It's too early for that. All 10 players who started this table are still here. And uh, the opponent who has limped in has 23,000. So he's down just a little bit from his original starting stack. So he limps for 400. What to do with pocket kings? Well, I think that we have a lot of wiggle room as far as our raise sizing we could really get tricky and limp in hoping that somebody on our left decides to squeeze i mean if i had a player on my left who had already punished the limpers once or twice in the tournament i might try to trap that player with a limp here but there's no need to get that tricky you know we have a loose passive calling station amateur opponent who has limped in and we have a better hand than his range obviously with pocket kings and we've got position so let's do the old alex fitzgerald have superior cards and build a bigger pot in position and i just decided to make it as big of a raise as i thought he would be likely to call so with that in mind i decided to put in 2000 so 5x the big blind and everybody folds back to our limper who calls. We got exactly what we wanted. We are now in position versus the worst player at the table, holding pocket kings and having position. What else do we want? Well, how about a king on the flop? Let's see. The pot is now 5,000 and the flop comes 10 of spades, seven of hearts, five of clubs. So 10, seven, five rainbow and our opponent checks it over to us. Uh, we have a pretty clear value bet. I think we can all agree on that with our overpair against this particular opponent. Uh, there's not much of a case to be made for checking behind. I think that I actually have a three streets of value type of hand, unless the run out ends up being especially ugly. Uh, I'm not sure how I would handle a check raise because I just don't think that this opponent is ever going to check raise with one pair. So we may have to find the disciplined hero fold, the exploitative hero fold in the event that he does check raise. Uh, but that's a pretty minor concern. I don't expect to get check raised very often on this board versus this opponent. So again, I think that we can be exploitative. 
uh, on balance, probably against a great player, you want to bet a small amount here so that you can get called not only by a 10, but by a wide variety of hands that he might have in his range. Uh, against this opponent, he will call any bet with any piece of this board, and he might call a lot of bets with no piece of this board. So I think that it's a golden opportunity and that many of you who just kind of robotically bet always one third of the pot on the flop or you know some other such uh, you know golden rule that you live by on every flop you ever see, if you don't take all of the other factors into consideration, then you're just leaving money on the table. This is a player who's very likely to call no matter how much I bet. So why don't I go ahead and bet a lot? I decide to make it 3,400 into 5,000. And this bet is designed to, as I said, get action from any pair that this opponent might have, including pocket pairs below pocket fives. I think he'd probably call this bet even with like pocket deuces. Uh, and of course, if he hit any part of this board, there are a few draws available. This player could actually have something like 9-8 or 8-6, uh, but mostly we're looking for him to have a pair and hope that he'll give us action, ideally with a 10. So we bet 34 and optimistically so, and he calls rather quickly. And I want to note that his quick call is actually an indicator of strength. Sometimes a quick call can be an indicator of weakness, for example, if my opponent is trying to call quickly to send me a message that he's not about to fold so that I shouldn't bluff him because he has a medium strength hand that he'd like to take to showdown but not have to call three bets with it, sometimes they call quickly and aggressively as if to say, don't keep bluffing me because I'm not going anywhere with my seven or whatever on 10-7-5. This call did not feel that way. It didn't seem like there was that much deep thought put into it. It was more like, okay, shrug, sure. I check, you bet, I call. What's next? What else is going to happen? So that's the way it felt, and that was the read that I had for the situation. Uh, the turn was the ace of hearts. So uh, for those who think that kings are ace magnets, you can add this one to your mountain of evidence. That's the case. Uh, the ace of hearts comes off, and my opponent checks. Now, the action's on me holding pocket kings, and I have to decide whether to bet them again. Well, I think things have changed a lot since the flop, don't you? You could say, if you want, and you won't be wrong, that the ace is actually the worst card in the deck for us to see. This opponent is very loose and likely to call our flop bet with a very wide range, hands that you would never dream of calling, like ace four suited with just one of his suit on the flop. So he's got like backdoor straight and flush possibilities with an overcard. So much of an amateur player's limping range is ace X. So this ace is not a good thing for us to see. Uh, against a, a more typical opponent, we would be less worried about the ace because unless he has like ace 10, he didn't call our flop bet in the first place. So there's very little chance that the ace actually changed anything. But even against that opponent, it should be hard for us to get three full streets of value as we had originally planned to when we saw the 10 high flop. So with that in mind, I think it's time to check back. It may look like the ace scared us, which it did not, but a little bit. <laughs> but it's, also, it's more so to be able to make sure that we can get our river bet called. There's something that Dan Harrington calls the hammer of future betting, 
which just means that turn bets are harder to call than river bets are generally because the player who makes the call has to also fear that there might be another bet on the river, i.e. the future betting. So that hammer is a very powerful tool to have in our multi-street bluffing strategy. A lot of our bluffs that we try on the turn will work, whereas the same bluff might not work on the river because the opponent can simply shrug and say, well, I know how much I can lose if I'm wrong. I'm just going to look him up here and call. As anyone knows who has ever tried the line of bet flop, check turn, bet river as a bluff, uh, those bets get called a lot more often than the bet, bet, bet bluffs do, and for good reason. So I don't want to lose this guy, and that's why I don't bet on 4th Street. So we check behind and let's see a river. And so there's still 11,800 in the middle, and the river is the nine of hearts completing the flush. So our final board is 10, 7, 5, ace, 9, with backdoor hearts having come in. And so can you think of a worse card to see on the river? Uh, the 10-9 got there. The 8-6 got there. All the flush combos got there. This is not good. So I'm not really happy with this card. And I'm not even sure if I'm going to bet if and when our opponent checks on the river but I don't even get to make that decision because here he comes out of nowhere for 15,000 into the 11,800 pot. Now, this is almost our opponent's entire stack. He's leaving himself with a mere 3,200 behind. So it feels like, why not go all in if you're going to bet that much? Why would you leave yourself just that 3,200? Well, a professional player might do that when bluffing, because he wants to look strong. He feels like leaving himself a few chips behind looks stronger than the all-in, which may look more desperate and more likely to get called as a bluff. But I think that this type of player that we're up against in this hand actually thinks the opposite and is more likely to be value betting here. My first instinct is actually that he's very strong. Uh, it looks strong, but it's probably not someone that's sophisticated enough to look strong when he is strong or not strong, you know, anything like that. It just feels like it is what it looks like. It's a very big bet from a loose passive calling station amateur player who probably doesn't get in there and chase too many bracelets and is now betting almost his entire stack on the scare card. Uh, I don't know. It's, it's a really big bet and pocket kings could well be good, but... I decided to get out of Dodge, and I'm not going to lie, this one hurt. I did not like having to fold those kings. I may have called a smaller bet on the river, but typically, and this is more true the more recreational your opponent is, but as a general rule, and let me underline general rule, uh, your opponents, when they suddenly show strength on the river, when they have just been passive throughout the entire course of the hand, now, all of a sudden, they wake up and make a huge bet on the river. Generally, that's not a bluff. So I think that I dodged a bullet here. Let me know what you guys would do with kings. Did you want to bet the turn? That ace scared me. And that's, a, that's a, actually an argument for calling this river bet. It's like, well, you can't check the ace on the turn and then fold when the scare card hits on the end. And against a better opponent, I might uh, agree with that assessment. But I want to know what you guys think. Tweet me at Clayton Comic and let me know 
if you would have been able to look this player up with the Pocket Kings. Okay, let's do one more from this same event. Uh, this will be a little while later. The blinds are now 300 and 500 with a 500 big blind ante. And there are now only eight players left. So it's actually, as I recall, towards the end of this level. So blinds will be going up soon. We have recovered from having to fold our pocket kings. And we now have 50,000, which is two times the starting stack and well above the approximately 32,000 average. So three players limp in. So as you see, there's a pattern here in the two hands that I'm discussing from this tournament. We have an open limp, which I thought was no longer a part of anyone's tournament poker strategy, but that just goes to show how little I know. Uh, one player that limps in is the player described in the earlier hand, the loose passive calling station and very unskilled player profile. The next limper is a pretty bad player himself, but he's kind of in the other direction, like a wild and loose aggressive. I'm guessing Pakistani. Uh, he's from Los Angeles. And then another limp, and this one comes from a talented Russian player that has already struck me as being my number one competition at this table. Uh, this guy has done a lot of things that I couldn't figure out. He made a pretty sick hero call earlier that turned out to be right. Uh, he just seems to be a very good, very balanced, very professional player who flew halfway around the world to be here. Uh, so now I'm on the button with the six of clubs, tray of clubs, certainly a junk hand and absolutely a candidate for a fold. If you don't like to play junk hands ever, even when you're on a button after three limpers and you want to throw this away. I don't have a problem with that. I think that most poker books you read, most poker coaches you talk to, most poker videos you watch, uh, they will tell you that this is a hand you should never play unless you are getting to see a free flop in the big blind, or maybe if there were a bunch of limpers and you were in the small blind and you were getting like a 12 to one or something like that. So I'm a little bit looser than most players on the button. And on the other side of the coin, I'm a lot tighter than most players from early position. So I elect to go ahead and limp in with this hand after the other three limpers are already in. We're relatively deep. Uh, a couple of the players have decent-sized stacks. The uh, Pakistani player in particular has 38,000. So... Uh, it feels like it might end up being a big pot if I happen to smash the flop. And I'm not planning to lose a ton of chips with like one pair uh, with this holding. So that has to be part of the strategy. Another key part of the strategy is I have to find spots to win. If you're going to play a hand as bad as this one, you have to do so with the intention of sometimes winning the pot without making the best hand simply because the six tray suited does not frequently make the best hand. So... We uh, also invite the, the blinds to come on in, which they do. The small blind completes, the big blind checks. So now all six of us see this flop with 3,500 in the middle. The flop comes queen of clubs, 10 of diamonds, eight of clubs. So we have the six high flush draw and five players all check to us. Now, should we semi-bluff here with our flush draw? I think no. Uh, for me, the answer is no, because I don't think that I can win the pot 
on the flop with a bet. Uh, with the queen and the 10 on the flop, that's going to hit a lot of people's ranges. Someone could be slow playing a really big hand like two pair or a straight. Uh, this is a board that is going to connect with so many players limping ranges that I just think it's a bad idea to try to bluff them all right now. The turn is the eight of hearts, which pairs the board. So now we have queen of clubs, 10 of diamonds, eight of clubs, and eight of hearts. Hero holding the six of clubs, tray of clubs. And let's see, three players check. And then the loose, wild, aggressive Pakistani player from Los Angeles bets 3,500 into the 3,500 pot. So a pot size bet uh, on this board pairing card. The Russian player calls with 29,000 more behind. And now the action is on your boy. Well, okay, we're getting three to one on a call which isn't quite enough to make the call. Maybe if we had the nut flush draw and could hopefully get paid by a worse flush if we happen to hit a club on the river. Maybe if we had a little bit more going on besides just the six high flush draw, you could justify calling, especially when the Russian player calls in between. You need about four to one, a little more um, to call here profitably. And that's if every time we make a flush, our hand is good. And so that's just not the case, right? We only have the six high flush draw. We need to be worried about somebody having a better flush, especially with this many opponents. So that means our options are to fold, which is probably a great play just to go ahead and get out of trouble. Uh, Any one of the players who already checked could easily have a straight or possibly an eight. One of the players who have already bet and called could also have a full house, a straight, or three of a kind, and they're not going anywhere. But I elected to raise, and this may seem wild on the surface, but let's talk it through. I made it 11,400, which is a little less than half of the average stack remaining in this pot. So I'm pretty much threatening the stacks of all of my opponents. Now, this is a play that I can afford to do because I've accumulated all these chips in the first place. And this is part of the strategy of trying to win your table. Like maybe taking a risk like this early in the main event would be ridiculous. And I don't think that I would ever do this in a tournament like that. But even in a tournament like this, it might not be a great play. But it is something that I mix in as part of my overall strategy. And the idea is the player who bet 3,500 is wild and has shown a tendency to take hopeless stabs at pots that he really shouldn't expect to be able to win. And also, I've noticed he likes to bet big whenever he bets. So his large sizing doesn't necessarily mean anything, although theoretically it does polarize him. And a player who bluffs way too often, who is now polarizing himself, is by definition bluffing most of the time. He bluffs too often, and when you're polarizing yourself, you either have a big hand or you have a bluff. And since you like to bluff so much anyway, this is probably just another bluff. Now, of course, even maniacs get big hands once in a while. But all things considered, I know that he probably has way too many bluffs in his range with this bet. More importantly, the Russian player knows that too and could actually be calling fairly light here, perhaps with just a one-pair hand like Ace-10 or Queen-Jack. Hands that are definitely beating the original betters range, but are not beating my overall raising range. 
also I'm making it small enough that I'm giving myself a really good price here that I only have to have success with this play like one third of the time for it to show an immediate profit. And that doesn't include the times when I might be able to win the pot with another bet on the river, either when I make my flush or when I can bluff my way out of this situation on the end. So with all that considered, we still have to worry about the players on my left who have checked. Now the blinds could have an eight, of course they could have an eight, but usually when they make three of a kind on the turn, players tend to wake up and bet right out, especially when the board is somewhat coordinated as this one obviously is with so many straight and flush possibilities. So I don't think that too many players would check an eight again as the board gets more and more coordinated. So for that reason, I can somewhat discount that one of those players who has already checked twice has a big hand. So we're really mostly concerned with the original better, which is the loose, aggressive, wild Pakistani guy, and the original caller, which is the most likely suspicious, talented Russian guy. So all of that comes together in my mind in the span of a few seconds, and I decide to play this street fast. I almost definitely have a few outs if I get called. I can absolutely fold if I get raised, <laughs> right? Because certainly that would have to be a very nutty hand, almost certainly, when I'm showing this kind of strength and they put it all in for their tournament life. I don't think that too many players would do that with just a hand like 8-7 or something like that. I think it's going to be much nuttier than that in the long run, and so I can fold my six high flush draw, which would really be painful having built this stack up to 50,000 and now end up losing about a quarter of it with no good reason to do so here on the turn. But on balance, I like taking this type of risk. Uh, just because I check back on the flop, I think that most of my opponents will think I can't possibly have a flush draw because they expect you to bet that all the time, especially in position. So they might take me off of that. So if I don't have a flush draw, what do I have? And the answer is going to be typically really big hands. Also, when I do have a big hand, something like three eights or a full house that I might want to check sometimes on the flop for deception purposes, I need to make sure I have some bluffs in those situations. And this feels like a spot to turn a six high flush draw into a possible winner. And sure enough, everyone gets out of the pot and we win a really nice pot there with just six high. I know that play will be very controversial and some of you would say it was wild and loose and reckless. And I want to hear all of your opinions. Do you like this bluff? Do you like my my logic here? Do you like my sizing? Do you think that this is spewy and stupid, but it happened to work this time? Whatever your opinion is, make it known on Twitter at Clayton Comic. Also, if you're still looking for a website where you can sharpen and improve your game, look no further than TournamentPokerEdge.com, where we have literally thousands of hours of tournament training videos. All of our videos are are there to help you get better, specifically at tournament poker. And you can get ten dollars off your first month's membership by using the promo code Podcast at checkout, and you'll save ten dollars off your first month at TournamentPokerEdge.com. So for everyone here at TPE. I'm Clayton Fletcher. Thank you so much for listening. I wanna hold them like the
Big doing takes his place. Fold them, let them hit me, raise it, baby, stay with me. Lock in intuition, play the cards with babes to start. And after she's been hooked, I'll play the one that's on her heart. Love nobody. Everybody, everybody.